Okay. Um, we are going to get underway. You should have... Here, I'm going to borrow this real quick from you. Okay. You should have two sheets with you, um, especially if you weren't here last week, then you may want to get this green one. Um, I don't know if we had these here last week or not, but this is kind of our schedule. And then you should have one with notes on it for today. Thank you very much. Um, anybody not have those sheets or one of those sheets or anything like that that we need to get them to you? We got some extra green. Well, we got extra of both if you need one. Just a green one. Anthony. All right. Um, for those of you who weren't here last week and, and maybe don't know me, my name is Drew Moss, and normally it would be myself uh, or Ryan or Scott. There will usually be two of us up here teaching because we, we do this in two sessions at a time. Um, Ryan, Vincent, and Scott are one being the others, but Scott is out of town. Ryan was preaching this week um, when I was putting together the stuff for Sunday, so I'll be doing both of them uh, tonight. Uh, I, I'll kind of, well, hmm, do I want to start in this yet or not? Let's, let's, let's go here first. I want you to take a few minutes um, with the people at your table or on your couch and answer this question. What do you believe are the most important, or at least some of the most important texts in the Old Testament. So if someone's sitting down with you and said, man, I need to, I got the Old Testament in front of me, where do I need to go? What are, what are like the, the first five, six passages you would show a person out of the Old Testament to help them kind of get the Bible a little bit? So take a few minutes, talk about that, and then we'll, uh, then we'll chat about it together. All right, let's go ahead, whoops.
All right, let's go ahead and talk for a second. Throw, give me, give me a few of the ones that you kind of threw out at your table or couch. What would you say would be some of the top? And you don't have to give me the number one. You don't have to give me an order. I just, just what, what are some that, that are important in the Old Testament? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Important. Why would you say, Ethan? I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. So, I mean, the creation of everything. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. Good, good place to, to make sure people see and to start. A good place for us to be able to grasp where we're going. What else? The Exodus. The Exodus where I, I heard it. Okay. Why the Exodus? Uh, because, I think because of the Passover and the Passover. Okay. Yeah, the Exodus and all the imagery that comes along with the Passover and all that, okay? Exodus is, by the way, it is, it is one of the Old Testament, uh, the psalmists and the prophets, like one of their favorite things to look back to when it wants to remind God's people of, of God's great faithfulness to them. Um, the Exodus is something that, that the Old Testament writers would say was a favorite. They would say it's, it's important. Uh, what else? Every messianic prophecy ever. Give me one of them, uh, Anthony. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Probably the two uh, most clear cut. Psalm 22. Whoops. And Isaiah 53, the most explicit and clear messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Some really important ones. Brandon? Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Are you looking... Genesis 12, that's right. We'll talk about that one today, which is... Okay, God showing up to Abraham. That's probably a good place to kind of transition in. But let me say this. Um, it is important to know um, what we believe to be important text. So I think we said this last week, that not all scriptures, not all verses or books of the Bible or passages are created equal. In the Bible, there are some that are clearly more important than others. And, uh, and, and it's important for us to be able to gain kind of understanding of what is important and why. Why does it matter? Um, so that's, that's a lot of what we're kind of going at here with this series. If you weren't here last week, first of all, um, we did record it. And so you can kind of get caught up if you want to listen to last week's stuff. But I'll give you kind of a, a brief overview. Um, we made this assertion based on actually something Tim Keller said, that the Bible is not a list of rules with, sprink, uh, with stories sprinkled in to illustrate. Instead, the Bible is actually one big story with rules perhaps sprinkled in to illustrate, if you'd like to say. Um, and, and a lot of people view that backwards and see that backwards, and for that reason, they fail to see how it's connected and how these pieces come together, and often they miss out on a lot of the most important things that have to do with our life. Um, namely, the main thing they miss out is that it's all pointed one direction, and that is towards Jesus. And, and so we want to make sure that we're getting our minds around it. That's the point of this series that we're doing, the story of Scripture, is we want to give you kind of a, a big picture view of the Bible and show you how all of it from Genesis to Revelation ties together. And, and we're doing that through these series of covenants that we're describing and walking through. You have them on the green sheet there, the first being the Adamic covenant, which we talked through last week. Um, Today we'll be in the Abrahamic Covenant, and then we'll go to the Mosaic Covenant, then the Davidic Covenant, and then finally into the New Covenant. And we'll spend, obviously, some extra time on that one 
for a little bit, but um, this is kind of a series, an unfolding of God's will and purpose and how he is moving through history for this, that, that the, the Bible is about God moving to bring his glory and his rule to the whole world. And so we opened up last week with Genesis 1 and God creating everything, but then God creating man, and it says in Genesis 1.27 that man was created in his own image, which we said meant three specific things. Um, what, what does it mean for God, for man and woman to be made in God's image? It means they what? First of all, they resemble him. That is, that they have the ability to look like, to portray the character and the attributes of God. Not all of them, and not perfectly, but they do have the ability to show who God is and, and that we were designed to do that. What else does it mean? Okay, that we have the ability to relate to him. God being triune is three persons in the Godhead in perfect relationship throughout all eternity. And so it makes sense then that when people are made in his image, that relationship, the ability to relate to him and to other people is a crucial and central aspect of that. And the last one was what? We rule like he does. In fact, we rule on his behalf. Under his authority, we are to rule uh, uh, for him. And so the idea, Genesis 1.28, the verse that came right after that, is the, the first command slash blessing that God ever gives. And he says this, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. And the idea is that this image of God that we take is to be multiplied and spread out across the whole world, that he is glorified as we reflect his image, as we rule on his behalf and, and under his authority, and as we relate to him and know him. That's what we're made for, and, and, and that's um, glory. That's, that, that brings him glory. But we also talked about this, that sin distorted every one of those three things. We no longer reflect Him as we ought to. That image in us, though it's still there, is distorted. And, and we no longer relate to Him properly because sin keeps us out of the presence of the Holy God. And, and rather than ruling under His authority, we decide to usurp that authority and rule for ourselves. And, and in the process, without actually realizing it, what we do is we, we hand that rule over to sin. We hand that rule over to Satan, and, and, and he has rule in our lives, and he has rule over the things of this world. So the Bible is God moving to make that right and to restore us and to restore creation back to himself. So we saw that with Adam, and then with Noah, there was a bit of a reset. Uh, man had only become evil, and all his thoughts were wicked all the time. So God starts over, destroys the world, starts with Noah and his family, says we won't ever do that again, but begins to work through them. And then, um, and then Babel comes and we see that actually things have not gotten much better. And people are still after their own agenda and their, their own purposes. And, and that's what leads us to our text today. Um, we're, we're sitting at about 2000 B.C., give or take 80-ish years on either side. Um, we're sitting about 2,000 years before Jesus, and the text is the one that Brandon mentioned, Genesis 12. So if you want to go ahead and open up there, that's where we'll start. In Genesis 12, what we see is Yahweh coming and revealing himself to this man named Abram, who, from, from what we can tell, does not know who God is yet at this time. 
Um, that's the, the, the common understanding, I, I say the common, at least this was my understanding, I think this is most people's understanding, is that Abraham was like, you know, technically kind of the good church kid who grew up knowing and loving God, and because he was so obedient, and because he had perfect Sunday school attendance, and because he went to all the VBSs, um, that, that God came and said, this is my guy, this is a faithful guy, this is a good guy, I'm going to use him. But, but more than likely, Abram was actually worshiping idols at the time. Um, that's the, the, the town where he's from. This Ur is known to have been kind of a famous place for, for idol worship and the worship of the gods of the moons and the stars. And Joshua 24.2 actually says this. Long ago, your fathers lived um, on the land of the Euphrates there and, and they worshipped other gods. It mentions Terah, that's Abraham's father. Terah, Nahor, and Abraham. And they worshipped other gods. But then God showed up and called him. And so this is the situation. God comes to Abram and, and reveals himself to him. And here's what he says in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Should have got there before I started. All right. It says this, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God shows up to Abram and he asks him to give up these three things. He says, go away from your land and your family and your father's house, which actually father's house and family sound very similar more than likely what he's getting at is the inheritance that comes with being in your father's house. When your father passes on and he passes on his possessions, he passes his household on, you're not going to get that anymore because you're with him and, or because you're not with him anymore. I've called you to a different country. He says, I'm, I'm calling you to give up these things, but I have something better for you. I have a greater blessing for you, so I'm going to bless you and, and make you a blessing more than likely, the, the reason God calls Abram to these things, um, to step away from his land and to step away from his family and, and the, the household inheritance, is because back then, almost everybody was polytheist, and that is that they worshipped multiple gods, or at least believed in multiple gods, and, and you tended to not worship all of them, but worship kind of a particular set. Like, usually you had kind of territorial gods, gods that reigned over a specific region, and so you kind of worship them, or family gods, maybe even ancestor worship that kind of worked in there. And so when God is pulling, calling Abram away from those things, he's calling them more than likely to, um, to basically cut ties with the worship practices of his family, with, with the gods of that region and of his family. And so he calls him to do this. This is, by the way, one of, as Brandon kind of pointed out, this is one of the most important texts in all the Old Testament and in the Bible. Uh, I said uh, a couple weeks ago, I got a chance to preach at Sunnybrook, I said that this was probably top five in the Old Testament. I've been thinking about that since I said it and reflecting on it, and, and truthfully, I would move it up. Maybe, maybe number one, um, because all the rest of the Old Testament and actually all the rest of the Scripture is unfolding out of the promise that is made here um, to Abram, that this, um, this statement that he gives to him. And so all of it kind of flows from this. It is a, it's a huge one and one that you need to have in your mind, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We'll get into why a little bit more in a bit. Um, because it's so big, you'll see if you read the next uh, 
20, 30 chapters, basically the rest of Genesis, you'll see actually this same promise come up over and over again. It will get reiterated and it will get kind of fleshed out. There will be more details given to it as you go along. But it comes up over and over and over in the Genesis narrative, this promise that's made to Abraham. One of the big places that it comes up is in Genesis 15. So go ahead and go there real quick and we'll take a look. Genesis 15, 5-6, Abram is wondering a little bit about this covenant because he doesn't seem to be having a lot of descendants. He um, doesn't have any descendants yet, doesn't have a son. He's wondering if this is going to work out, and he's t- telling this to God, and God calls him outside. This is what God says to him. Genesis 15, verses 5-6, through 6. And he, that is God, brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number him. Then he said to him, you sh- uh, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That, that last verse right there, verse 6, is a favorite in the New Testament. It's, it's talked about a fair amount. Um, Abraham believed Yahweh, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, here, here's why. Because... This passage is chapter 15, and it comes just a little bit before chapter 17. There's a little math for you. 15 comes before 17. Um, So it becomes, what? Yeah, 15, there is a 16 in between, and then a 17. So 17 is the covenant of circumcision. This is where God shows up to Abraham and says, Um, I I want you to be circumcised and every male in your household is to be circumcised. This is to be a lasting ordinance and everyone is to be circumcised. Anyone who's not is cut off. And so that became the primary sign and the primary marker for the people of God was circumcision. So much so that when we get to the New Testament, they don't know how to let go of that. Because for 2,000 years, that's been the main marker. And so surely it must be today when these Gentiles start becoming Christians. First of all, they don't even know if that's allowed. That becomes the first major controversy in the early church is, are, Christ, are Gentiles allowed to be a part of God's people? Because they, they haven't really been for 2,000 years since this whole thing started. And, and we'll get into it. But one of the main things they said is they, maybe they can if they get circumcised. Paul loves to come in and say, now wait a second. When did our forefather Abraham get righteousness credited to him? Was it when he got circumcised or was it before that when he believed in God, when he had faith in God? And, and, and uh, Paul loves to drive back to this to say, to, to prove this point, that it has always been, ever since the very beginning with Abraham, our relationship with God has always been about faith and not a particular ceremonial work that you can accomplish to please Him. That from the get-go, faith didn't replace anything. It wasn't works and then grace, or law and then faith. It was always faith from beginning to end. 15 is actually, Genesis 15 is officially where the Abrahamic covenant kind of takes place. God brings Abraham outside, and he has Abraham cut these different animals in half. This was a fairly common practice, a covenant-making practice, in which you would split these animals in half, and then the two, part, the two uh, covenant-makers who were entering this together would walk between the animals as if to kind of say, if, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, may this happen to me. May I be torn in two like these animals. And yet the interesting thing in Genesis 15 is Abraham never gets to walk through. 
that, that God puts him to sleep, enters him into a deep sleep, and then walks through himself, um, basically saying, like, who's really going to hold me to this if I don't keep my, keep my end of the deal? The only person who can keep God to his word is God himself, and he will. He's faithful to it. And so God walks through when the covenant is made. Here's another big place where this promise is reiterated. It comes in Genesis 22. You can start to go there. Genesis 22 is a pretty famous story. It's the story where God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to himself on Mount Moriah. Um, Usually this story is told um, with the emphasis in the wrong spot. Generally, the crux of this story, uh, the main uh, issue at stake in this story is, wouldn't it be hard to give up your son? And, and, and the point most people kind of push it to is that God is calling Abraham to give up the thing he loves the most to see if he really trusts and follows God. And, and God may do that to you, and he's doing that to Abraham. And wouldn't it be so difficult to part with your son? Wouldn't it be so difficult to be willing to give up the thing you love the most? That is all true. It would be difficult to give up your son. It would be difficult and excruciating to sacrifice your son, but that's not where the drama lies in this passage. The drama lies on this, uh, on this issue. God has promised to Abraham that he is going to make of him a great nation with many descendants. Abraham waits 25 years to see any bit of glimmer of hope when he finally has a son, and now God is calling him to give that son up. God is calling him to give up what looks like the only chance for the promise to be fulfilled. So the question in this is, man, would you be able to do it? Is, is this hard? It's not that. It's... It's, will God be faithful to his word, and will Abraham trust him to do so? You can tell that that's the main point, because every time Isaac is mentioned in this passage, um, it, it calls him your son, comma, your only son. Your son, comma, your only son. Now, is that true? It's not true, is it? Is there, there's another one whose name is what? Ishmael. So he's not your only son, but he is the only son through which the promise is supposed to come. So when he's saying this, when when God is saying, give up your son, your only son, that's what he's saying. Give up your only chance at the promise. Give Because God has already told him, it's not coming through Ishmael. The promise will come through Isaac. And so that becomes the major um, point of crisis in this. Abraham trusts God. He goes through it anyway. And at the last moment, you know the story. If not, spoiler alert, he doesn't kill his son. Um, God shows up and stops him and, and says, Now I know. Now I know you trust me. Now I know you'll be obedient. And for that reason, I'm going to bless you. And, and here comes kind of his... Um, here comes the... The main thrust of that passage is in Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. It says this, And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, there it is, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. One thing to kind of catch real quick is um, do you notice how, how God's statement to him, because of this, I will surely multiply your offspring. What does that sound like? 
Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. And so we can see in here what is happening. God is taking what he intended for human beings from the beginning with Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, take my image to the world. And now we see the shift is coming. And now he's narrowing down and says it's through Abraham that's, that that's going to happen. Abraham and his descendants will multiply and I will reveal myself through that. Um, so that's the, the kind of a, this, this reworking of that original command and promise. There are two specific things that I want to make sure we hit on in this passage, two really key details to this, looking down at 18, both of them in 18 there. The first is this, that in your offspring says this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is huge. And, and here's why, because there is a common misunderstanding um, for many Christians when they read the Bible, and that is that the point of God choosing Israel was just that. He chose them so that they could be His chosen people and so that they could be um, saved, that they could be His, that they could belong to Him. And, and so that's the main point of Israel, is they got lucky God chose them so that they can be with Him and be chosen. And it's all about Israel in and of itself. Um, actually, a lot of people still kind of believe this today, that, that the Israelites, that the Jews are God's chosen people, that He has pulled aside for Himself, and that they have a unique status amongst the rest of the world. Uh, I think that that's a misunderstanding of the way that the Bible plays out and the way that the Bible is, is kind of laid before us, um, starting all the way back in Genesis 12. Actually, Israel believed that it, it appears all the way through the Bible that the point of God coming to us was us. Like, and aren't we lucky and aren't we special that He came and chose us? Yes, they were lucky. Yes, they were special. But the point was never just them in and of themselves. Um, from the very beginning, I mean, at the outset, when God first comes to Abram in Genesis 12, He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to bless all the nations. And so from the beginning, the entire world was in God's plan. The plan was bigger than Israel. And, and actually, you can see hints of this. If you start to read through the Bible, it's not just Genesis 12. Particularly in the Psalms and in the prophets, um, there will be statements about how God is calling, what will, will eventually have the rest of the world for himself, will eventually bring all the nations to himself. Let me give you a few passages that are, that are really worth checking out. Uh, we won't read them here, but you can write them down and take a look later. Psalm 22, verse 27. Zechariah 2, 11. Isaiah 49, 6. That's a famous one about um, being a light unto the Gentiles. And Isaiah 19, 25. Isaiah talks a lot, actually. Hints at this a lot. It, I imagine it would have been somewhat confusing for his listeners to hear him talk so much about the Gentiles and the rest of the nations. Isaiah 19 would have really messed with their heads because in that it calls, uh, it says this, that Israel is his people and also Assyria is his handiwork, Assyria being Israel's greatest enemy, and Egypt his, I think, treasure possession, I think he calls Egypt. Egypt being the kind of the quintessential, these are the people who kept us captive all these years. And even all the way back in Isaiah, he's saying, God says, I want all of them. They're all mine. They all belong to me. 
And so you see kind of hints of these. The idea is this, that Israel was meant to be, and I don't know if I got this from Jim or from another professor of mine from Ozark, but I love this. There's the bucket of markers. Man. All right, right there in front of my face. Okay. Um, so the idea is that Israel was not supposed to be a bucket, that just bucket, that just <laughs> takes in all of God's blessings and holds them in for themselves. Rather, the idea was for Israel to be a funnel through which God poured his blessings out on the rest of the world. As he blessed Israel, the rest of the world was blessed. Now, how? How was that supposed to happen? Um, a couple different things that we see. Kind of the main idea is from Exodus 19.6. God says that you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And that is um, a priest's job is to be the one who stands between God and man and, and kind of um, speaks to the people on behalf of God and vice versa a little bit. And so what Israel's designed to do is to be a reflection to broadcast the glory of God to the rest of the world, just like Adam was supposed to do, just like all the human beings are, are made to do. Israel was supposed to be kind of the special people. They did that by um, the word of God coming through them. The scriptures came through Israel revealing who God was and what his will was. They did that, or they were supposed to be doing that, as they were faithful to the law, that was supposed to be a light to the rest of the nations around them, to look at them and say, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what life ought to be. And, and by and large, they do a fairly bad job of that. Um, they have some moments of success. They do decent in some spots, but um, by and large, they, they end up blowing that, and they do not do a very good job. Fortunately, um, when God said that through Abraham's offspring, he was going to bless the whole world. Um, Israel and the people of Israel was not the fullest definition of that word, was not the fullest um, culmination of what that word is. And that's the second part that I want to make sure we cover out of this. He says this, that by your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And offspring is a really big word to catch. Um, now, as I said, if he's talking only about Israel here, it doesn't fully happen. It only sort of happens because he says, I'm going to multiply your offspring and they're going to just fill like the sands, fill in the sea. They're going to be all over the place. And that sort of happens. But then in um, 722 BC, Assyria comes in and takes most of them away and off into exile and they somewhat kind of disappear. We, we actually kind of lose track of those people. So they're not all over the place, multiplied like crazy so much anymore. And they're not being a blessing to all the world around them. And he says this also, your offspring will possess the gates of your enemies. I'm um, rephrasing here, Genesis or 22, verses 17 through 18. Um, that, that they're going to possess the gates of their enemies. That, that happens when David is king, but it doesn't happen for long after that. So if all he's talking about there is the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, then, then that promise is only sort of fulfilled. Um, that's why Paul says that it's, it's not just about them, um, that it's actually bigger than that. Um, go on to Galatians 3. Galatians 3 is a huge passage for helping us to be able to understand the way the Bible ties together and the way that this, this big passage in Genesis 12 and 22 and 15, 
how that all plays out. Galatians 3, verse 16. says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So this is what, Abra- this is what Paul says. When God told Abraham that he was going to bless the whole world through his offspring, yes, Israel's a part of that, but ultimately the fullest culmination of that term is actually found in Jesus. And, and when he says he's going to bless the world through him, it's through Jesus that um, all the world is blessed. So here's kind of the big question. Then what in the world did God mean when he said that I'm going to multiply your offspring? If Paul is taking pains to stress that it's offspring singular, and yet God took pains to stress that it's offspring multiple, that I'm going to multiply and make many of them and make many descendants, then what does he mean by that? How do those two things go together? This is what Paul answers just a few verses down in verse 26, chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are, here it is, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this is what Paul says. When we place our faith in Christ and when we are baptized into Christ, then we actually um, we, we move ourselves into Him and become the offspring that He is. We join Him in being that offspring that blesses the world. We join Him in being heirs. And so in that sense, um, in, in that sense, it is able to become multiple. And, and, and this is where we tie back into that, all the nations will be blessed. Because the main issue that Paul is driving at in Galatians, the the context of the book of Galatians is you have these Gentiles who just became Christians, and they're so excited and they're so happy that they're now a part of God's people, and then these Jews come in and say, no, 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 not so fast. doesn't work that way. It's good that you're trusting in Jesus. It's good that you're believing in the Messiah, but you have to be circumcised, i.e. you have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian, in order to be part of God's people. That's the way it's been for 2,000 years. That's what it says in Genesis 17. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to be part of God's people. And Paul writes to say this, no, no, no. The idea is no longer that you have to be a part of Israel to be part of God's people. Now it is you have to be a part of Jesus to be a part of God's people. Jesus is the new replacement for what Israel was supposed to be, the blessing that showed God and brought His glory to the world. Jesus comes and He is that and He becomes that. And so now you don't, you don't become God's son or daughter by joining yourself with Israel. You do it by joining yourself with Jesus. And this is a promise that is open to everybody, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, that everyone is able to get in on this and everyone is able to be a part of this. That's why it can be said that all the nations are blessed. Here's actually how Paul stresses this. Go back in Galatians 3 to verse 7. Galatians 3, verse 7 and 8. 
actually 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that? I love that in verse 8. says this, that God, um, the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations we bless. What, what Paul says is that when God speaks the truths of Genesis, 1, or Genesis 12 to Abram, he's actually preaching the gospel to him. And that's the gospel, that everybody is going to be a part of God's team, that everyone actually has the opportunity to come back and be redeemed and restored and to give Him the glory that is rightly His and to live the kind of life as His image bears that we're called to. That is Genesis 12, the gospel. We're going to take a break here for a couple of minutes. You can use the restroom or chat or whatever. What I'd actually like you to do is, as you're at your tables, if you need to get up and stretch your leg, that's fine. But um, kind of at your tables, I want you to talk through what we just, what we just hit on here for a little bit. Um, talk about what stuck out to you. Talk about maybe something new you hadn't heard. Uh, we just unpacked a lot there. And I want to make sure that we're kind of processing. And, and if you have questions and stuff, we'll chat about it. So spend a few minutes talking about this and, and how this kind of affects your view of Scripture. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, share with me for a second. Any, any kind of thoughts or comments or questions? How, how are you kind of processing some of the stuff we just heard? Wait it out. Yeah. Kids, yeah. And they all become great nations. Yeah. Even though, like, humans screwed up the first three, God yes. was faithful to his own covenant. Yes. To produce Isaac. Yes. Yes. There are all these. They're all, there's almost this kind of, you can see that whole, that, that through Abraham the nation is going to be blessed. You can see it even at the beginning, that there is this almost kind of spillover to the people connected to Abraham, Lot and his, um, and his, um, kids become nations, and Ishmael and all his uh, descendants become these great nations. You can see some of that from the beginning, yeah. Anything else? Anything else interesting to you or new to you, Marie? I like your reference um, to Israel being a funnel. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's, yes, to bring, to bring Jesus into the world, to bring, and that's a great, well, uh, there's some really big stuff there that's so important, well, I'm sure we'll get to talk about later, but that's really good, Marie. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I, I found that pretty interesting that, that even the only very last faithfulness 
Yeah. So, so God works through people in their sin and those things, and He is still able to accomplish His purposes. But that does not mean that there's never consequences for those things. That there's never things that happen as a result of some of those sins. Anthony. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's powerful. And also, it reflects God's own nature, being one, but also many. Yes. Yes. There's a really good, I, I forgot to mention to those of you this is new this week, um, we've, we're kind of partnering this study up with um, a lot of the inspiration for it was this book, God's Stories by Andrew Wilson. And I totally forgot to bring some copies that you could have bought. Uh, bought. But if you'd like to, we, we do have some um, that, that you can buy for 10 bucks. And, and this is not, we're not walking through this step by step, but it is good supplemental stuff. And he's got a great chapter on the seed um, or the offspring, as is described in Galatians 3. And explain, he gives a great illustration to explain how that works, how the one ends up being many. Um, and and it's, it's really good stuff. So, um, let's do this. Let's 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 jump in. We what we did last. Uh, so in in our last session just now with Abraham, we really got very big picture, and talked kind of a big um, theological issue of how the nations are blessed in the offspring of Abraham. And so really kind of ten thousand foot level, seeing how it all plays out. In this one, I, I really want to kind of take us back down almost to ground level and walk step by step through the history, through through the rest of Abraham's family and through uh, through the rest of Genesis. I say walk through that we're gonna sprint through the rest of Genesis here and and, and through how that kind of plays out. Uh, to, to pay attention to, to what he's doing in there. Let me give you real quick the breakdown of Genesis from, from Abraham on. So Abraham gets um, chapters 12 to, I think, 23, 20, um, to 25. Jacob... Noticed we just skipped somebody. Jacob gets 25 to 35. And then Joseph gets chapters 37 to 50. And we skip two. Isaac. Um, because God is consistently referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, these are the three first patriarchs that we go back to over and over again. And yet, Isaac, even though he's mentioned up there because he is early on in the process, he really is not in the text very much. He's much more of a bridge between the Abraham and Jacob narrative. He's kind of a role player in their stories. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago he gets one chapter, and, and it's even kind of in the middle of Jacob's story almost um, seemingly at first glance out of place, but these are the three that the rest of Genesis really focuses on. It focuses on Abraham, of course, and then it goes on to his grandson, Jacob, and then spends a lot of time talking about Joseph, who we got to hear Ryan preach about. Those, those of you who are at Sunnybrook got to hear Ryan preach about uh, this week. 
Um, so the covenant is with Abraham, and it's one of blessing. So I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and then I'm going to bless the world through you. Um, but this is important to kind of catch. Even though that blessing does spill over to family members, the, the promise that he's going to bless the whole world through, and the blessing of the promise does not go to anyone who is a descendant of Abraham. It's not one of those things where if you're Jewish, you're good. Well, we already kind of touched on this, but John the Baptist loved to rail on the people for that. Don't just say, we're sons of Abraham, everything's okay. Uh, we can live however we want, we're sons of Abraham. John the Baptist says, no, God can make like sons of Abraham out of these rocks right here. So don't think there's anything you know, super special about that in and of itself. Um, he talks about that. Paul talks about this, that not everyone who descends from Abraham really is in on the blessing. He says not everyone who's, who's from Israel is Israel. Not everyone who's from Abraham counts as Abraham's sons. In fact, we actually see this right off the bat, um, that Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and yet even though some of the blessing comes out of Ishmael, the promise doesn't come through this one. Only comes through one of them, through Isaac. Isaac, in turn, has two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob, but the promise doesn't come through both of them, does it? It comes through one of them. It comes through who? Jacob. It comes through Jacob. So we see this um, from the very beginning. Go to Genesis 25. This is when um, Rebekah... Isaac's wife is pregnant with Jacob and Esau. She's pregnant with these two twin boys, and the pregnancy is a bit of a rough one. Um, and so she inquires of the Lord. And in chapter 25, uh, verse 23, this is, this is what God says to her. And Yahweh said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so we see this idea that from even before they were born, God said Jacob is the one that's going to be the strongest. He's the one that the blessing is really going to come to and come through. And, and so he decides to work through him. Jacob, as you know, is manipulative and deceitful. Um, he, he manipulates Esau out of his birthright. And, and he deceives his father Isaac into giving him uh, Esau's rightful blessing as the older son. And yet God uses Jacob in spite of all that. And, and I do want to stress those words, in spite of that, not because of that. You can get into a bit of a, a theological conundrum when, when you read and you see that God chose Jacob to be the one through whom all the blessing would come. And then Abraham gets these blessings by deceiving and manipulating and scheming. And so the question is, so did, did God want that to happen? Did God cause that to happen? Did God? And I think the answer is no. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think that Jacob getting the birthright has anything to do with him having the promise and the blessing come, coming through him. And I don't actually even think that him getting Esau's blessing. I think whether, whether he would have gotten the birthright or not, whether he would have gotten the blessing from Isaac or not, he still would have been the one through. God could have still used that. And, and, and even if the birthright was important. And even if the blessing was important, I think God would have found other ways for that to take place rather than through his own scheming and his own deceitful behavior. So God uses Jacob in spite of this. But because of the, the many times he's kind of um, he's deceived or, or manipulated his brother and because he keeps taking all his brother's stuff, Esau is 
angry and mad and he vows to kill him. And so what Jacob does is he flees. Rebecca actually sends him up to her hometown, her home region of Param Aran, and, and tells him, go up there and, and, and find a wife from our family up there. Find, a, find someone. My, my brother Laban lives there, marry one of his daughters, and I'll tell you, I'll come get you when it's safe. Um, so Jacob flees and he makes his way up to uh, Paranaram and, and as he's on his way, he ends up meeting God. Go to Genesis 28. Genesis 28 verses 10 through 17 records this encounter that Jacob has with God. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's what he said to Abraham, remember? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I, have, um, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob wakes up and he goes, Oh my gosh, this, this wasn't any ordinary place. I met God here. This is the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven right here. Um, and, and, and after that, he makes this interesting kind of deal. He says, you know what, if, if, if God, if Yahweh will do all the things he said he was going to do, then, he's, then, I, then I'll follow him. He'll be my God, just like he was my dad's, just like he was my grandpa's, which kind of implies that he hasn't been yet, that Jacob hasn't been serving and following him, at least exclusively he hasn't. But he says, but if he'll do this stuff for me, if he'll bless me, if he'll take care of me, if he'll protect me, I'll serve him, which, which is kind of actually like, quick question, <laughs> what do we do with that? Is that how we should be operating with God? I heard an answer. I don't, think so. I don't think so. So then what do we do? What about Jacob? What are we supposed to do with, with that? This is, real quick, the danger of trying to look for a moral of the story every time you read. What am I supposed to learn from this, from the behavior of this person? If... If, if that were the case here, then what you should learn is if you make deals with God, it'll all work out for you. If you just tell him you'll only follow him if he does good stuff for you, then it's all going to work out for you. But that's, that's not the truth, right? That's not something that we want to follow. Two things you need to know. First is um, Jacob is not always, in fact, a lot of times he is not a model to be followed a lot of the people in, in the scriptures are not, they're not given to us to say this is how you act. They're given to us to show how, how they interacted with God and how God was faithful to those people and worked with them 
and, and was faithful, more importantly, to himself. So that's the, the first thing. Second, I will give Jacob a little bit of a pass um, because, see, we have Genesis 28 and 12 and 15 and all these things to look back on and Galatians 3 to see how it all worked out. Jacob had nothing yet to look back on. Now, he could have and should have, and I hope, hopefully did, listen to the stories of Abraham and of Isaac as they described God's faithfulness, and that, that should have been enough. But the truth is, Jacob is, as I said, operating in a polytheistic culture where you don't know all the gods real well, and you certainly don't know which ones can be trusted or not. And so in some sense, Jacob is going, I don't know yet if this, if this God is, worth, is able to be trusted. I'll see if he's true to his word, and then I'll follow him. So he gets a tad bit of a past, but not fully. Here's what's really important about this scripture, kind of a, a little side note I want to I take with you. It, it was stated last week, Paul actually said this, that, that we have a tendency to be he said he has a tendency to be a New Testament Christian, Christian and, and that's true for, I think, a lot of us, um, to, that, that we are New Testament Christians in the negative sense. What I mean by that is that we are New Testament Christians to the exclusion of the Old Testament, that we almost kind of push the Old Testament aside and only focus on New Testament things. That's the part where Jesus comes, so that's the only part that I really need to worry about. Um, and, and the problem with being a New Testament Christian is when you push away the Old Testament, you actually end up losing a lot of the New Testament as well. Because as you know, the New Testament is full of Old Testament. It's full not just of quotations, quoting the Old Testament and the different prophecies and different statements there. It's also full of what we call Old Testament allusions. That is where the writer will touch on a, a, a phrase or an image or an idea, a theme from the Old Testament. And if you don't know your Old Testament very well, you'll miss it. And, and you'll miss maybe out on the fuller term. Let me, let me show you how this works. Go to John 1 real quick. John 1, um, in this passage what you have is Philip has encountered Jesus and Philip has come to believe that Jesus is the, the promised Messiah who is supposed to come. And so Philip runs and he goes and gets Nathaniel. Kind of a, an interesting, I don't know what to make of it, but something that's kind of cool. Almost every time you see Philip in the Bible, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. It's kind of what he, it's what he does. Um, don't, don't even know fully what to do with that. Just kind of an interesting idea. So he runs and he goes and gets Nathaniel. And he says, we, I, I think we found the Messiah. I think we found the guy we've been waiting for. And Nathaniel's like, who? Who are you talking about? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's at that point that Nathaniel utters this kind of famous phrase, Nazareth. Like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Come from Podunk, um, Nazareth. And, and, and so this is kind of Nathaniel's like, I don't know about this, but Philip's like, you just got to come see. And so Nathaniel goes to meet Jesus, and this is what happens in John 1, starting in verse 47. Verse 47 says this, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you don't know your Old Testament very well, then you're left with that passage thinking one of two things. Either that's a literal, and I don't remember any point in which angels were ascending and descending on Jesus. Or you have to take that as sort of a generic Jesus is saying that really cool things are going to happen when you hang out with me. Super spiritual, awesome stuff is going to happen. But that's not what he's getting at. If, if you know your Old Testament, if you know Genesis 28 as all the first century Jews at that time would have known, you'd see what Jesus is saying is, I'm the new Bethel. I'm the new gate to heaven. Bethel was the place where Jacob met God. This is now where you meet God. This is where human beings have access to him, is, is through me. And, and that's a profound and strong statement to make. A number of people will tell you, this is kind of more liberal scholarship, likes to point out and say that Jesus never really made any explicit claims to be divine, to be God himself. And I would say I can see where you could get that if you don't know your Old Testament. Like if, you don't, if you don't understand scriptural references and the way they talked back then and what they're pointing to, I could, you might be able to come to that conclusion. He does kind of um, hint around things sometimes, but statements like this are pretty strong that he makes. And, and, and this is why a, a better understanding of the Old Testament gives us a better understanding of the New Testament. Back to Jacob's story. Once he gets to Paran Aram, Jacob um, meets Laban there, and Laban has two daughters whose name are, names are what? Rachel and Leah. Leah is the older. Rachel is the more beautiful one, the one that Jacob falls in love with. And so Jacob says, I'll work for seven years if I can marry your daughter, Rachel. And you know how the story goes. He works for seven years, but then on the wedding night, Laban pulls this crazy elaborate switch and and puts Leah in there with Jacob. And so he ends up with her and and wakes up and says, what what in the world happened? And and so Laban says, tell you what, work for me another seven years and you get Rachel. So that's what happens. He, He works for 14 years to get both of these wives, actually just mostly to get Rachel and Leah kind of comes along as collateral or as side, whatever you want to say. And, and, and that sounds bad to say about her, but that really is almost the way that she is treated. Like Jacob never was really in love with her. And she ends up in this marriage with a husband that, that kind of was really hoping for someone else the whole time. And once he got that, someone else didn't have a whole lot of time for her. And in that process, this rivalry begins between the two sisters. Rachel, who Jacob loves, and Leah, who is able to bear children, which Rachel's not able to do at first. Not only that, but Leah is bearing sons for Jacob, which would have been a big deal and a big honor for him and for her. And so this rivalry develops in which they're both trying to... um, out-conceive, if you will, each other, um, have both of them trying to have more kids than the other and trying to, to earn Jacob's love from them. Jacob stays up in this region for 20 years. Now, the, the idea was that he was going to go up there for just a little bit of time, and when everything kind of cooled down, he would go back home. That doesn't work out, and it appears that Rebecca, his mom, who loved him so much, and you know he was her favorite, she actually uh, dies while he's gone because she's never mentioned again after this. And so he never ends up seeing his mom again. But he comes back. He, on the way back, he meets and he reunites um, with Esau. Um, they kind of make things right again. And then Jacob travels around that land, sojourns around it, before God calls him back to Bethel. 
God says, I want you to go back to Bethel. And, and he never says this explicitly in the text, but what seems to be happening is God is saying to him, do you remember that promise you made to me back in Genesis 20, back the first time there, if I took care of you, if I blessed you, if I kept you safe, that you would follow me, it's time, time to make good on that promise. Because as soon as God says, I want you to come back to Bethel, this is what Jacob turns around and says to his family. Everybody, it's time to get rid of your idols. Okay, we're going we're gonna to go meet God now, and I made this promise, so you gotta, we got to stop all this stuff. And, and so they literally they, they take their idols and they go bury them under a tree, and, and it's at that point it appears that they kind of say, we're, we're done with, with the other gods now, and now we'll focus in on, on this God, on Yahweh. Um, go to Genesis 35. Here's what happens when Jacob shows up at Bethel again. Genesis 35, verses 9 through 12. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paran Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Um, Do you catch there in verse 11 what he says to him? God said to him, I am God Almighty. And then what does he command him? Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1, 28. Um, the plan that was there from the beginning is still in action through Abraham and his family, that they would be fruitful and multiply. We also see this specific promise that is made to Jacob, and it was actually made to Abraham, I think back in Genesis 17, um, that kings will come from you, uh, that, that there will be kings that come from Jacob, and, that, and that's kind of a, an interesting point to pay attention to. O- over the course of time, Abraham has these 12 sons, and these 12 sons become sort of the the 12 tribes of Israel. I'll explain the sort of in just a little bit. Um, Three of these sons have some special significance, and I want to talk about one of them right now. We'll talk about the other two at the end. Um, The three sons uh, would be uh, Judah, Levi, and Joseph. Let's talk about Joseph real quick. We'll kind of talk about backwards. Um, Ryan preached on Joseph this last Sunday, and so a lot of this is stuff you've, um, you've heard and, and been able to talk to, but, but I want to make sure we kind of cover it here because it's important. Um, Joseph, as you know, is the favorite, and the reason he's the favorite is because he's Rachel's firstborn son. When she's finally able to conceive and have children, Joseph is the first one she has, and so Jacob loves him the most, and and. He's getting all this special treatment from his dad, and he also has this tendency to keep telling people that they're going to bow down to him, which never goes over real well with your older brothers. Um, he, he has these dreams in which people bow down to him. Totally okay to have that dream. You may not want to just report it all the time whenever you have that. And, and so Joseph likes to do that, and he tells them, and he tells his dad, yeah, I think, I think you're going to bow down to me one day, and they don't like it very much. And so eventually they, they conspire to get rid of him. In chapter 37, kind of where his story takes off, is when they grab him and they sell him into slavery. Um, there is a weird intermission in chapter 38 where um, it kind of stops for a little bit to talk about Judah and his own weird story. 
um, with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. It's worth reading. It's at least PG-13. PG That's kind of my warning for you, um, for you but, but, but worth checking out. And, and, and there is a reason, I think, that the, the writer wants to stop and focus on Judah in that moment. Um, we'll talk about it a bit at the end, perhaps. Um, so, Joseph goes down to Egypt. He ends up being bought and, and working for this man named Potiphar. And, and after working for Potiphar, this is the Cliff Notes version, um, he's accused by Potiphar's wife of, of trying to rape her, and so he gets sent to prison. This is all in chapter 39, but this, um, this phrase comes up over and over and over again in chapter 39. It really sets the tone and, and hints at what the bigger story is. It says this, And Yahweh was with Joseph. So he goes to Potiphar, and Yahweh was with Joseph, and so he blesses the house there, and everything that Joseph does works out, and then things collapse, and he gets sent to prison. But Yahweh was with Joseph, and Yahweh was with Joseph, and that really does give us a clue as to what the larger point of the story is. After a few years, he ends up getting out because he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and then um, gives him wisdom. Remember, he says that there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And, and so what you need to do is you need to make sure that you're saving up during the plenty so that you can be able to take care of them. You need to find someone who can be in charge of that. Pharaoh says, I think I got my guy right here. And so he places Joseph in charge of everything. The famine comes, and it doesn't just hit Egypt. It hits the whole region, which means it hits the land of Canaan where all of Joseph's family is living, where Jacob's family is living. And so they have to come to Egypt for food. They come, they, they come and they don't recognize Joseph. And then basically you got like two or three chapters of Joseph just messing with them for a little while. Um, and then he finally reveals himself to them in chapter 45. Um, so go there real quick, chapter 45. Here's where it gets, here's, here's where we see kind of the point unfolded for us. When Joseph reveals himself to them, obviously they're a little bit freaked out because the last time they saw him, it was when they were um, throwing him into a hole and, uh, and then selling him off. And so they're a little nervous that now he has all this power. This is what he says in, chap, in, in 45 verses 4 through 7. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. And, and the other kind of counterpart to this is um, chapter 50, verse 20, which is the famous, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. But what we see when we read these passages is what the point of the story is. The point of the story is not about integrity or about um, being a, a person who follows their dreams or about doing the right thing even when it costs you. The point of this story is God's sovereignty and His faithfulness. And what we see happening is God is saving. He sends Joseph there so that he can end up saving the descendants of Abraham through whom the whole world will one day be blessed. If, if Joseph doesn't end up in Egypt, God's people die out in Canaan and Jesus never comes. And so all of this comes together for God's larger purpose and we get to see that taking place in the story of Joseph. 
I told you there were the other two brothers I wanted to talk about. Two brothers, then two quick thoughts, then we're done. Um, one of the brothers, uh, the other brothers I mentioned was Levi. Now, the reason that there are 12 brothers, um, well, yeah, the reason that I say the 12 brothers sort of become the 12 tribes is because um, one of them actually doesn't have a tribe named after him. Anybody know? Joseph. There's no tribe of Joseph, if you read. He actually, he actually gets kind of the honor of his two sons being counted as, one of Jake, uh, as Jacob's own sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and so they get tribes. Ephraim and Manasseh get tribes, which means now there's 13, and so that's not working. The math is not coming together there. The reason it all kind of works out is Levi never ends up having his own territory. Um, their descendants never actually have. So, so there is a tribe there, but there's not like a section or a region for the tribe of Levi. They're spread throughout all the country as the priests. The priesthood comes through Levi. The first high priest, Aaron, comes through Levi. Moses, who leads them out of the Exodus, comes through Levi. And what God says is, you're not getting land because your inheritance is me. Um, you're serving me. And, and so this becomes a significant group and some significant things that come through this tribe of Levi. The other brother that is important is Judah. Um, Genesis 49 records Jacob going around and blessing all his sons kind of while he's on his deathbed, and as he knows, he's about to die. And his words to Judah as he blesses him are pretty striking. Look at 49 verses 8 through 10. Um, oh, sorry, that 48. This is what Jacob says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's not people as in the people of Israel, but the peoples as in the different nations. To him the obedience will be. So we saw that kings were supposed to come from Jacob. The one that comes through is Judah. And he makes this prophecy that through him, that one day in his lineage, that the peoples, the nations will bring him obedience. That becomes somewhat fulfilled when David comes on the scene and he sets up this kingship that begins to rule over the whole area. And different peoples and nations are obeying him. But the ultimate fulfillment of it, we will see, comes through Jesus when all the peoples will come to him in obedience and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Um, and, and so um, we see it, even in Genesis 49 this, this hint of a, of a coming Messiah who will rule over them well. Um, two quick things to notice. I want you to notice from Genesis, um, from this last section, how much we slow down here. Because what we talked about last week, Genesis 1 through 11, covers as much as 4,000 years of history. So 4,000 years of history covered in 11 chapters. And then we get here, and in the final 38 chapters, we cover about 120 years. And so the Bible is not simply just a book of history that is marching through detail after detail, fact after fact, year after year. It has no problem moving past thousands of years to get to the point, to get to the important stuff. And Abraham and his family becomes what is in 
important. And so that becomes key to kind of catch on to. The other thing I want you to notice is this. Abraham has two sons, the first of which is Ishmael. And, and common practice back then is that the firstborn is the one through whom the blessing comes. That's the one the birthright goes to. That's who the lineage and the name comes to the firstborn. That's really important. But what we see is that it doesn't actually come through the firstborn Ishmael. It comes through Isaac. And Isaac ends up having two sons, the oldest of which is Esau. The younger is Jacob, and it doesn't come through Esau. It actually comes through Jacob. Jacob then marries two, um, two women, two sisters, Rachel, who is beautiful and who is desired and who he loves and favors, and Leah, who ends up kind of on the sidelines and is almost discarded by her husband. But the promise doesn't come through Rachel's lineage. It actually comes through Leah because Leah has the first four boys. The first one is Reuben. Reuben, as the oldest, is the one through whom the lineage would be expected to come, through whom the promise and the blessing would be expected to come. But it's not through Reuben. It's actually through the fourthborn, which is Judah. And we see this pattern develop from the very beginning that God has this, this practice of using the most unexpected people and the most unexpected means of accomplishing his purposes. And that will follow all the way through, that when you come to this tribe of Judah and you follow it to its first great king, it's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Do you remember this? And Samuel goes to find the king, and Jesse starts to line up all his sons, and he starts with the oldest and the strongest and the greatest, and over and over again, God just says, nope, nope. Nope, until you get to the scrawny little shepherd boy at the end, and God says, that's the one I'm going to use. And then you follow that all the way through into the New Testament. When everybody is looking for this great and powerful warrior king who's going to come in and he's going to conquer um, Rome, and he's going to throw up, and they're looking to, to royalty for this stuff to happen, and instead God slips in the great king of the universe in a stable in the middle of a manger, in this kind of backwoods area of Palestine. And consistently, God has a way of, of taking the world's systems and the way it works to do what it wants and flipping it on its head. And, and I guess to, to maybe end on a slightly devotional note, I just would say that that's encouraging for me, um, that, that God's not necessarily in the habit of using the brightest and the best and the most likely, that He uses the willing and He uses those who, who, who want um, to follow after him, that as he says to, um, to, to Samuel and to Jesse, like all men look at everything on the outside, that is what's great about a person and what, what's impressive, but I look at the heart, and that's what I want to use. That's how he's operated from day one, and that's how he continues to work through us today. Any, any thoughts, any questions as we kind of close out or wrap up? All right. Um, next week we'll jump into the Exodus and the Mosaic Covenant. So excited about that, and we'll see you guys there.